to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. This is Rick Paschke. I am the content guy for the ABA's business law section. And welcome to the business law section podcast program to the extent that we have a new series and this is entitled Selected Lessons from the Director's Handbook. Situations commonly encountered in the boardroom. Today's episode will be on the role of the Compensation Committee. Let me introduce our host. Our host is Frank Placenti. Frank is a partner and leader of the U.S. Corporate Governance Practice of Squire Patton Boggs. He is currently the chair of the Business Law Section's Corporate Governance Committee, and he is the editor of the BELS Director's Handbook a field guide to 101 situations commonly encountered in the boardroom. Frank uh, conceived and was the founding president of the American College of Governance Council. So with that, I will now turn over to Frank and our guest for today. Thank you uh, very much, Rick, and thank you to the ABA for hosting Uh, this series of podcasts featuring selected chapters from the director's handbook. Uh, All of the authors of that very much appreciate uh, your work with us. I also want to invite those uh, listening to today's podcast to look out for future podcasts in this series. Uh, We are currently planning to do a dozen or so, but may do more depending upon uh, responses. And since the chap, the subtitle of the book is 101 Situations Commonly Found in the Boardroom, um, I don't know that we'll do 101 of these, but we, we may do more than 12. Uh, I'm joined this morning uh, by uh, two of the contributors to the Director's Handbook and very much appreciate their time. And it's my privilege to introduce them now. And Melody Rose is a shareholder of Fredrickson and Byron. Uh, that firm has been a long-term contributor uh, to the ABA's Governance Committee Uh, with several of their partners uh, meaningfully participating, and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, Melody serves as the outside general counsel, outside counsel uh, doing general corporate and securities work for public and private companies at all stages of development. She has 25 years of experience uh, doing securities regulation, corporate governance, and uh, equity uh, work uh, for Uh, public and private companies doing mergers and acquisitions in business planning. Uh, Melody is chair of her firm's public companies practice group and serves on its elected compensation committee. And since today's topic is compensation committees, I can tell you that um, you can keep the lawyers in a firm happy with their compensation. You certainly ought to be able to advise uh, public company boards. Uh, Melody is very active in the corporate governance community. She serves on the board of the National Association of Corporate Directors, Minnesota's chapter, and the Minnesota Women's Corporate Directors Group. She also teaches corporate governance uh, along with her partner, John Stout, who is a former chairman of this committee, 
as an adjunct professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Our other participant today uh, is equally well qualified. Uh, Liz Dunchy is the managing editor of CCR Corp, where she translates the latest developments in securities law, disclosures, practices, and corporate governance and executive patrons into practical advice that appears in the Corporate Council uh, and on its website in compensationstandards.com. She also oversees the Corporate Council, Corporate Executive, and Deal Lawyers print newsletters. Part of joining CCR Corp, uh, Liz was also a partner at Frederick. Sen and Byron, I hope you're detecting a trend here, where she counseled public companies on investor communications and engagement, boardroom issues, SEC and exchange-based disclosure requirements, uh, and employee compliance training, among other things. So Liz and Melody, uh, welcome to you both today. I'm going to turn it over first to you, Liz, and then to Melody to just give a couple of minute introduction about what you're seeing as compensation trends uh, this year. Sure, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here and um, continue participating in this project with the ABA and of course, happy to be reunited with my good friend Melody as well. Um, so I think we will probably touch on each of these topics a bit more in depth as the conversation progresses today. But the main trends that people seem to be focusing on right now and that seem to be affecting compensation committees are, um, one, how the companies are responding to the pandemic with respect to their executive pay arrangements, um, whether they're adjusting those or taking a wait-and-see approach, um, and then, of course, the disclosure that accompanies that as well. Um, also, there is increasing pressure on compensation committees to add ESG metrics to their plans um, to sort of appease this um, desire to link business performance to long-term sustainability and um, long-term performance. And so... Um, that seems to be a trend that's gaining momentum, but definitely one that is difficult to navigate. Um, and then also the compensation committee's role is expanding to address um, not just executive pay, but also human capital management and the oversight of the workforce generally. Um, that's certainly been a hot topic um, in addition to its interplay with diversity and inclusion initiatives. And comp committees are needing to get more involved in that um, because that seems to be the direction that things are going. Um, so those are sort of the hot topics. Of course, there are the perennial topics as well, um, needing to link pay to performance and to uh, um, pay executives fairly uh, to motivate performance. But... Um, being cognizant of the optics of that as well. And I think we are going to talk a little bit about the tyranny of the 75th percentile and um, how that plays out. Uh, and then effective disclosure and communications with shareholders and other stakeholders. That is always uh, an important role for the compensation committee and one that, uh, if anything, is just gaining in importance right now. Well, thank you very much. Um, 
Melody, do you have anything you'd like to add? Thank you, Frank. And uh, I echo uh, Liz's uh, sentiments on um, joining you all here today. I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, to discuss this topic and, and uh, that's so near and dear to, to all of us on, on this call. Uh, it, it relates to trends affecting compensation committees. I, I think that Liz has, has uh, very eloquently uh, identified the top trends uh, hitting uh, comp committees uh, currently. Um, maybe just to, to add to that uh, slightly without getting into too many of the details, because I know we'll be talking about that in a bit. I would add uh, a couple other thoughts that are weighing on comp committee, uh, comp compensation committees. One is uh, an overlay of the concept of uh, innovation in, in, in how quickly um, companies are needing to adapt, not just because of the pandemic, but generally adapt to a, a global uh, economy, um, to the innovation, digital and otherwise changing workforces, all of those things. There is so much uh, coming at businesses these days and comp committees are really uh, struggling, I think, uh, to, to accommodate that, that rapid uh, change uh, in, in all those different areas. Um, to particularly on the talent uh, retention and recruitment area, but 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 throughout uh, the uh, the operations of the business, and I think uh, uh, second and uh, in, in related is is how to balance the short and long term mix. There's been such a trend driven um, by the investor uh, community to focus on long term performance. But with uh, particularly with the pandemic, but also with the rate of innovation and change, um, a lot of the short term metrics have seen a bit of a rise in focus recently and trying to find that right balance without overly complicating uh, the compensation arrangements is, is has been a bit of a challenge for compensation committees, uh, practically speaking of late as well. Uh, but uh, generally, I echo what Liz had said, and I'm looking forward to digging into uh, uh, two or three of those topics as we continue our discussion, Frank. Thank you very much. Uh, greatly appreciate that introduction. Why don't we kick off with a discussion of uh, how compensation committees did respond to COVID in uh, 2020. One of the things that uh, I've noticed over the years is that um, we seem to have ingrained in our compensation committees um, a uh, hesitancy to change the goalpost in the middle of the game, uh, you know, things like options, repricing, a change of compensation metrics mid-year, and other things uh, that um, can cause skepticism among investors that um, the board is simply changing the rules to benefit management uh, to the detriment of shareholders. But in, 20, in 2020, with the COVID situation, and certainly no one could contend that management was responsible for headwinds in their businesses as a result of COVID, uh, did boards respond differently? Uh, were they nimble? Did they, in fact, respond with uh, modified metrics? And if so, what was their rationale? Frank, uh, let me jump in on that one. I, I, I actually have noticed and seen uh, that uh, change in approach as well. I, I think in 2020, I, I did see more compensation committees willing to adjust uh, metrics uh, mid, 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 uh, midstream, if you will. Um, they, 
Not so much on the long-term performance uh, metrics. I think most companies let those ride. Um, but in, in terms of kind of the short-term, um, I, I saw some companies uh, making some adjustments there. But I also saw compensation committees who, uh, if they weren't actually changing the metrics, if you will, they were uh, granting one-time awards. If they knew, for example, a, an executive who was performing extraordinarily well in light of the pandemic, but was never going to hit their targets, rather than adjusting the targets, they would grant one-time awards, whether it was cash awards or equity awards, to kind of compensate, if you will, for 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 that uh, changing scenario. But I did see more companies willing to make some of the adjustments. And I think part of that, quite frankly, um, it related to the fact that there's a little more flexibility in some of the uh, tax rules as well that allow for some of those adjustments. So um, I, I, do, I did see more um, adjustments, Frank, but, um, you know, quite honestly, if uh, I kind of expected there might be a little bit more, but I think they found ways to to uh, uh, address the needs of their executives, even if it was through uh, one-time grants. Liz, when they did that, uh, first of all, you can comment on whether you saw the same trend. And when companies did that, what was the recommendation as to how they would communicate with their institutional investors and others about their decision? Yeah, I I agree with what Melody is saying, although I think that there was still hesitancy among comp committees to make midstream changes, even to annual awards. Um, and some investors, I think, would argue that even though nobody specifically saw the pandemic and that type of fallout coming, um, there is some risk um, assessment already built into performance plans and um, maybe they shouldn't be changed. Maybe they already accommodate low performance because of um, unexpected events. So that's one argument that I think um, some comp committees were hearing when they sort of tested the waters on whether to make any changes. So I think for that reason, a lot of committees were taking a wait and see approach for most of the year. And maybe that's why we haven't seen so many announcements yet, because um, they may just now be at the point where they're evaluating performance and considering what actions to take. Um, a minority of committees did adjust goals or metrics in their annual incentive plans, uh, as Melody sort of mentioned, um, for example, to add a metric like health and safety or cash flow, or even to reduce or reset performance targets or to shift to relative metrics instead of absolute metrics. But I think most compensation committees are probably relying on discretion, um, either in the form of the one-time awards that Melody mentioned, or in some sort of end-of-the-year adjustment that hasn't been disclosed quite yet. Uh, it's a, a complicated decision because it needs to strike a balance between paying executives for their leadership and bringing companies through this challenging time and all these crises that they're facing, um, but also being cognizant of the hardships that employees below the executive level are facing. Um, you want, always want to be careful of the optics there. Um, and I agree that the changes to long-term incentive plans are much less common, at least for existing plans right now. Um, but that maybe we'll start to see some discussions of adjustments to those plans beginning in 2021. Um, now, on the communication piece, as I mentioned, 
effective communication has always been a key part of the committee's role, but the pandemic-related pay decisions will attract even more scrutiny to those decisions. And so there is a need, even more of a need, to engage with shareholders and be intentional in thinking through and communicating the company's strategic goals and how the compensation program and any changes to the compensation program incentivizes those achievements. Um, already, we're starting to see some pushback from unions, at least, over executive bonuses that were paid based on performance metrics that were adjusted in the midst of the pandemic, especially if the company laid off or furloughed workers. And I think that's only going to intensify as we head into proxy season and more of these decisions get made and get disclosed. Um, so I think the main thing is just for compensation committees to be prepared to explain those decisions and um, also to realize that this is probably an issue that will remain even after the pandemic due to the increased focus on human capital management and pay equity. Yeah, Nate, if, 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 if you don't mind, Frank, I'd like to add uh, just a couple of thoughts to that. I, I agree with everything Liz was saying, and I would, as we look forward to, to 2021 and setting plans for the future, another aspect that I think is a real challenge for compensation committees is the fact that oftentimes the equity uh, awards to executives is is tied in some form or fashion to, to stock value, market value. Um, that's part of the overall compensation uh, assessment for executives. And, and, and as we all know, um, many companies have taken a significant hit in terms of their, um, their market value. And so how com compensation committees evaluate the impact of, of those stock price uh, uh, adjustments, if you will, are they, are they, are they long-lasting adjustments? Was it a, a reset or, or is it just a blip? And how do we take, in, take that into account? Because a lot of the executive compensation package, if you will, is, is much less given their stock price is much less, um, at least for some companies. And, and, and how to evaluate that uh, in terms of looking forward is going to be a bit of a challenge for comp committees, as well as communicating that to investors who, quite frankly, suffered some of the same uh, uh, losses uh, that, uh, that the executives are seeing in, in their um, you know, stock portfolio within the company. Um, okay, so during our planning session, um, we uh, you, we agreed, or at least you invited me to play stump the van <laughs> and uh, surprise you with a question. So um, it's a hypothetical. You represent a company that has a couple of businesses. One is it does conventions, uh, planning for conventions, uh, large scale uh, gatherings in public convention centers. And uh, it has a second business that's hospitality related. Uh, and as um, was the case for many companies in 2020, uh, they were they faced headwinds. But in this particular company's situation, uh, their revenues went to nearly zero. Um, the company does have unionized workers uh, in its convention services business, uh, and it did about a 90% furlough of employees while it was hoping to ride out the pandemic. Meanwhile, it had a management team that had presided over an increase of the company's stock price pre-COVID from about $4 to about $68, and they were steaming ahead to great uh, acclaim by um, their institutional investor base. 
So the compensation committee calls and says, Melody, um, what do we do here? Uh, can we uh, adjust the metrics of our managers? Can we give them special one-time retention bonuses? Uh, and what do we tell the unions and our institutional investors uh, about this situation? Frank, I think uh, when we were in our planning uh, session and, and you mentioned uh, the, uh, you know, stump the band type of questions, I, I encourage you to ask all of those of Liz instead of me. But um, <laughs> uh, since the question was directed my way, I'll do my best to answer, Frank. Um, I, I think in, in that in that in that scenario, um, I think the answer um, obviously is very fact specific and, and, and uh, but based on what the facts you identified. I think it would be um, uh, well within uh, the purview of the compensation committee to to adjust metrics given the what I would call a very fundamental change in that business's operations as opposed to some businesses may which may have seen uh, some impact, but it wasn't such a fundamental uh, impact. And I suspect that in this case also, if there is, uh, you know, any any hope, if you will, of kind of seeing seeing it through and 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 turning the tide, that you're going to need to retain that strong management team, assuming there is a, a confidence in that management team. So, so from a retention standpoint, I think it would be uh, appropriate and and well within the purview of the comp committee to do that. Having said that, though, I do think, uh, as Liz alluded to earlier, it would be extremely critical in 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 this situation for for the management and the board, specifically the comp committee, to uh, engage with their investor base, uh, particularly the unions and, and others that might be um, uh, partic uh, particularly interested in, in how they're doing that, to explain the rationale, to under to help them understand why it is important to do this if they want to have hope of, of some longer-term payout, we need to retain the management team and that requires some adjustments in the metrics. So, you know, long story short, I think I think it, it is something that the comp committee uh, uh, certainly could do and, and probably should do as long as it was married with with some really strong shareholder engagement. Yeah, okay. and I would think just to add to that, that the communication to all of the stakeholders would be key, including to the management team, and that there would need to be some balance. I mean, you you would want to pay them enough to motivate them to stay and to reward them for bringing the company through a challenging time, but not so much to disrupt these other stakeholders and, um, you know, anger investors or the employees and the unions. Um, and so I think you would need to communicate to the management team too, that you were seeking that balance and, um, based on the hypothetical and what a strong management team they are, uh, they would probably be pretty understanding of that, I would think. You know, and some of, investors would even argue that you were um, saving some expenses because so many people had been furloughed. So that there should be some recognition of that as well. And, and I think we shouldn't under uh, uh, forget to mention that uh, the role of you know, an outside consultant advisor, whether it's legal, as we were just talking about this hypothetical, or or otherwise to evaluate the market and the conditions and the peers, because clearly the hospitality industry has been uh, particularly hard hit. And so understanding right. what is happening overall in the industry would be critical to a comp committee and, 
and certainly they can get some of that internally, but I think, um, you know, externally getting some advice from uh, advisors, uh, compensation advisors would be uh, particularly important with making these types of fundamental changes. Just yeah, a little, that's a good point. I'm sorry. Let me just add a little practice tip. Um, companies like the one I just described also had another challenge during the year, which is when your revenues drop precipitously, uh, you, uh, you may in fact need a capital infusion. And that happened mm -hmm. uh, in a number of situations. And when that did happen, uh, there was an opportunity to provide cover to the comp committee for some of these special uh, situations because the investor, the new investor, the private equity firm buying into the public company would often uh, be uh, certainly amenable to, or in fact demand, uh, some type of employment agreements with the management team to assure that they were going to hang around. Uh, and under cover of those agreements, you could make some of these retention arrangements uh, negotiated at arm's length, essentially, with the yep. investor and helped justify them to the public base as well as to the unions is something that was a required retention arrangement in order to secure the capital necessary to keep the company afloat. So that's just, uh, while that's not applicable to every situation, you often have twin crises in these situations where you have to manage the management team, uh, the investor's perception of your compensation, but at the same time, you're managing a capital crisis. And when the two converge, there's an opportunity to have one sort of help provide air cover for the other. Absolutely. Yeah, and that goes to engaging with the shareholders as well, I think, as your new investors coming in. We all hope to uh, move on from COVID in 2021, and so perhaps this podcast should as well. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to move to two new topics. Uh, quickly, the changing role of the Compensation Committee. Um, the term human capital was used earlier in this podcast, and that's something we certainly have heard a lot about. Uh, the, continue, the greater emphasis on human capital. Melody, uh, what is the Compensation Committee's role uh, in that uh, new focus? You know, Frank, I think, um, you know, to say that it's kind of a new trend, well, true isn't uh, entirely true because I, I've seen compensation committees uh, morphing into being more human capital uh, committees uh, over the over the last several years, not just uh, recently. But I think I think what it means has maybe changed a little bit. Um, I see compensation committees getting more involved, not just uh, you know how do you pay your 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 top management team, but what are the overall policies for uh, employees. How are we managing uh, leadership uh, development in, in succession? How are we uh, engaging with our employees? I think it all goes uh, to a whole lot of different things. It's not just um, managing uh, compensation and, and, and the like. It's, it's helping to manage the culture of, 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 of the firm. It's helping to uh, identify uh, risks uh, within the company, um, identifying strategic opportunities, if you will. And the comp committee has really increased its, its role in that. I, I've seen some boards adopt human capital committees separate from the comp committee as well. Uh, but regardless, there has to be some alignment there. And, and, and I think that trend is going to continue, particularly as we look to some of the, the, the stakeholder interests, if you will, that are, that are 
are, are really getting um, a focus these days, whether it's ESG generally or more specifically within ESG, some of the societal things such as diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and I think all of those are, are lending its, its, its way to increasing the, not just the purview of the comp committee, but its, its obligation, quite frankly, to be more involved in some of the efforts. Uh, more specifically on the inclusion and diversity, for example, I'm seeing the compensation committee um, engaging with uh, the, the human resources team within, the, within companies to uh, not just understand what the programs are, but building into compensation arrangements, uh, plans that, uh, or excuse me, metrics that recognize uh, uh, the diversity and inclusion efforts and uh, successes, if, if, if you will. So, so it's, it's, not, it's becoming less rhetoric and more um, actionable. And, and I think that's gonna continue, that trend is absolutely gonna continue and, and it won't be just for the HR person, right? It'll be across the board for the all the executives in in their char, in their reporting uh, direct reports. So, um, human capital is 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 such a broad term, um, but I think in the next year or two, um, it is going to uh, cover a lot of bases. And first and foremost, on that is the inclusion and diversity efforts. Before we move on to to that and get Liz's view, um, a quick question, Melody. Uh, it, if you're going, if the compensation committee is going to increasingly play a role, not just in setting compensation of the management team, which is originally how how these groups were set up and the, the role that they were given, and and if you read many of their charters, that's probably how they're focused. But if you're not going to ask them to look more broadly at the on uh, long-term needs of the business and the need to develop human capital and and the like. How should the comp- composition, how should boards think about the composition of the committees? And does the expanded role change the skill set needed? I absolutely think it does, uh, Frank. I think, you know, all boards, and we've talked about those of the seven governance have talked about it for years about the composition of the board and, and, and how that plays out and how you need, you know, depending on the nature of the company, you need, you know, a, a manufacturing expert or an international expert or legal expert or whatever the business might be. But I think more and more you're seeing one of the skill sets, people uh, who have a background, not necessarily specifically in compensation, but, but you know, human capital management and the like, because it is becoming um, increasingly recognized as as an important uh, component of of board oversight. So I do think I do think that uh, the the composition of the compensation committee will continue uh, to be uh, evolving, and and I think we need to recognize it not just in terms of the experience on like an HR side, but also in terms of um, uh, different um, uh, experiences. You're going to continue to see. Uh, more diverse candidates uh, getting onto boards, whether it's uh, legally or morally driven mandates, um, you're going to see more diverse candidates, and I and I and I expect that also to be reflected in the compensation committee. You're going to, in terms of talent, experience, um, uh, racial, gender, all all uh, different kinds of diversity. So I think that's needs to find its way to the compensation committee, and that's going to require some some rotation, maybe more thoughtful, not just ad hoc planning in terms of rotation of the compensation committee, but a more thoughtful plan is to rotation of the members on those on that committee in particular. I also think it's valuable for the whole board um, and leadership to get exposure to different uh, 
uh, committees, um, I think it helps develop uh, board leaders uh, in particular to be involved in the compensation committee. So um, I, I, I do think how you define who should go on which committee, not just compensation committee, but um, uh, all committees is, is going to continue to evolve, uh, especially as we look to uh, uh, diversity and inclusion efforts. Liz, do we need a new box on the skill set metrics for our directors? Do we need a box now that t discusses experience with human capital development? Well, um, it probably wouldn't hurt if there's a, a extreme focus on that, but I think it's going to be a gradual shift to adding something like that. I mean, many companies are still not even doing a specific skill set matrix, although there's definitely demand for that amongst investors. But um, yeah, I think that's something that people should be thinking about at least moving in that direction if they're not already doing it. And I would say that it's a natural fit for the compensation committee to be adding these human capital topics um, because of, like Melody mentioned, their pre-existing oversight of company-wide compensatory and benefit programs, as well as oversight of whether employee incentive programs motivate the appropriate level of risk-taking. Um, so I think that's just sort of naturally falling to compensation committees, but it is worth um, being more intentional and giving more thought to what the composition of the committee is and whether they are appropriately staffed to carry out that role. I would also say um, I agree with Melody that this will probably become even more common and get even more attention going forward because um, companies are now required to discuss human capital topics in their Form 10-K. And so that may be a reason to consider the governance structure around those and certainly to have conversations as part of the annual charter review for the compensation committee and the other committees and the annual um, board evaluation process and um, consideration that's given to composition of each of the committees. Thank you. Um, so Liz, let's move on to the topic of diversity and inclusion and two part question for you. First, we all know that uh, you manage what you measure. What kind of metrics are you starting to see companies introduce uh, to um, measure the performance of the management team with respect to diversity and, and inclusion. And the second question is, um, how do you see the difference between diversity and inclusion? You almost hear those words twinned these days. They have different meanings. And um, how do you help people understand the different meanings? Well, I'll take the second question first. And I would punt on that a little bit to say as a uh, white woman, I don't know if I'm exactly the right person to answer that. Um, but my um, understanding and impression of that terminology is that diversity relates more to um, the metrics of how many people fit in various categories, um, whether you have a diverse workforce or a diverse management team. And inclusion goes more towards how you are making sure that those people are actually um, feeling empowered and able to contribute to the company. So um, the efforts that you have around um, unconscious bias and systemic racism or sexism and um, how you're 
putting in training programs to address those issues and making sure that everybody has a voice. I think um, that's how I would think of inclusion. Um, so then as far as... That's a pretty good definition. One of the things that I've said to boards over the years is it does no good to invite diverse people into your boardroom if you're going to expect them to behave just like everyone else uh, and uh, cut them out of the herd if they don't. In other words, right. you don't get the benefits of diversity unless you allow people to express their diverse viewpoints and make them feel welcome when they do so. Exactly. Yeah, you need both. Well, I'll talk about metrics. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good segue to metrics because I think that metrics should address both of those components. Um, although, um, from what I've seen so far, I think they tend to be more focused on diversity, but I do think it's evolving. So, um, the diversity metrics tend to focus on um, numbers in the workforce and at the management level or at various levels of the workforce, and also pay figures and compensation figures um, to ensure that there's some form of pay equity and not some sort of systemic or unconscious discrimination occurring. Um, the other piece that I could see as far as um, inclusion metrics, but that I haven't actually um, read much about yet, um, would be um, metrics around training programs and um, other sort of softer efforts that companies are undertaking to ensure that there is inclusion. Um, like I said, I haven't really seen much written about that yet as far as companies announcing those types of metrics, but that's probably something that will be coming down the line. Um, so these are these can be difficult things to measure, but there's an expectation that's developing, um, especially as companies are coming out with statements in support of diversity inclusion. Um, there's an expectation that companies will put their money where their mouth is and incentivize those priorities. Uh, and a growing number of companies are saying that they'll link executive pay, at least, to DNI commitments. Um, but I think there's still quite a bit of variation and whether that's just a discretionary component or whether there's some sort of transparent formula with clearly disclosed metrics. Um, so that's to be determined and something that compensation committees are grappling with. I've seen it suggested that DNI metrics are best as a downward pay modifier to financial performance because that might allow you to avoid awkward disclosure in the event that you miss the target. Um, and again, compensation committees always need to be thinking about the disclosure and stakeholder communications in the back of their minds as they're making these decisions. And so um, that is something to consider. And then one last point that I will make on this topic is that there's been pressure from investors to disclose workforce data including work workforce composition and pay data that could evidence, as we discussed, whether there's a pay gap for underrepresented groups. And there have even been some shareholder derivative suits alleging that boards have breached their fiduciary duties by ignoring systemic discrimination. And DNO insurers are starting to focus on that too when they're renewing their policies. And so um, there is this growing expectation that compensation committees will be carefully conducting pay audits addressing discrepancies and taking appropriate steps to further diversify and to promote inclusion. And you want to make sure to 
include employment law counsel in those endeavors as well, and to structure the processes in a way that gets the benefit of the attorney-client and work product privilege. In a few minutes, yeah, I absolutely agree. Melody, I agree I, with what you're... Have just about five minutes left, so if you don't mind, mm-hmm. I, I want to go ahead and move sure. on to the changing pace of compensation metrics. And you're going to get the first to shot at this one. You know, we all mm-hmm. have seen uh, a consistent and uh, pretty well settled fit, uh, move from shareholder primacy, um, in which had sort of dominated the conversation for many years, to stakeholder governance and corporate purpose over the last decade. So if a board is now uh, being asked not simply to manage uh, the company for the benefit of shareholder value, but for the benefit of all stakeholders and to fulfill a a corporate purpose, how do you change, and you're telling your management team that that's what you want them to do, how do you change the compensation metrics to assure that uh, that's happening? And I'll just quickly point out that in the wake of the uh, business roundtables statement on corporate purpose, Harvard, one of the Harvard professors uh, did an analysis of the compensation metrics of the companies whose CEOs were signatories to that document and found that virtually none of them had changed their compensation metrics despite stating that they were signing on to the business roundtable statement of corporate purpose, which had a broader focus on stakeholder value. So how would you counsel a board uh, to build into their compensation metrics the desire for a broader gauged management process? Tough question, uh, Frank, but an important question. And I think it, it, it relates uh, not just to what you're saying, the, the change in kind of more of a stakeholder uh, focus, if you will, but, but some of the things that Liz was referring to, whether it's diversity, inclusion, or ESG generally, all of those things. I think compensation committees are being particularly challenged to come up with uh, non-quantitative metrics that they can measure and discuss and disclose in a way that is responsive to the uh, the concerns and, and needs, if you will, of, of the various stakeholders. I think it is a huge challenge, but I think it is one that the comp committees have, have, have recognized, have maybe shied away from a little bit, but can no longer... Uh, hide from. Um, and, and, and my advice to them is, is, I guess, initially to figure out what who their stakeholders are and what they really are looking for, truly get feedback from them, and then, and then try to devise uh, uh, metrics that would be at least, uh, if not fully, at least in part responsive to those, those demands. And, and that only comes from a robust shareholder engagement uh, a program or excuse me, stakeholder engagement program. So I, I think that's that's probably a, a, an, an initial start. I think relying again on some outside consultants to understand what's happening with other peers in the industry and what they're doing, I, I think is 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 important as well. Um, ESG, for example, is 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 a big area and, and is still struggling to have some sort of uh, standardized approach. Uh, but but understanding ESG, what your stakeholders want, how to present that, being consistent in 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 applying some of your metrics, and quite frankly, being a little bit creative. Um, I think too often companies are are are, are don't want to be the um, the leaders when it comes to some of these changes. But 
But in some cases, it, it just it, it might require a little bit of trial and error um, to figure out what ultimately will will work. But um, I, I think that uh, you are starting to see a bit more of of openness to some alternative uh, metrics. Uh, but it is it is still very much in the early stages uh, of Frank, and in in a lot is yet to be determined on how that's all going to to work. And it is very company specific in 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 a lot of respects. So, I think um, my my best advice to comp committees at this point, uh, as it relates to uh, addressing stakeholder concerns in in applicable metrics, is to get their feedback, find out what's important. Um, and 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 look to their own company in in ways that they can um, affect uh, addressing those needs in in measure uh, accordingly and try to be consistent uh, in in how they approach that. Um, uh, be a little open and creative and uh, and and try a few things. Um, but I think there's going to continue to be some pressure uh, on comp- compensation committees to make some changes there. But it's it's still early, Frank, and a lot of people are still trying to figure it out. Hey, Liz, what are your thoughts on this area? Yeah, I do think it's um, becoming more common to add ESG metrics into the compensation plans. One statistic I've seen is that 62% of Fortune 200 companies now incorporate ESG metrics in some way into the incentive plans. Um, Like Melody said, there had been this historical hesitation to do that, I think, because people maybe viewed that as creating a windfall for executives or a way to create a windfall for executives. But because of the existence of all of these disclosure frameworks and companies becoming more um, committed to their sustainability reporting and consistency with that, um, there are now more measurement techniques for these metrics. And so it's becoming, in that regard, a little bit easier to add them to plans. It's been most common so far to include these types of metrics in annual plans and to focus on operational metrics that are relatively easy to me- easier to measure, um, things like employee turnover, customer satisfaction. Um, and that's a step in the right direction. But um, to your point and to Melody's point about um, stakeholder concerns, that those types of things may not have the strong link to long-term sustainable performance that investors are actually hoping for. Um, there is some evidence that the views of compensation committees are evolving and that maybe there's more momentum to start putting ESG metrics into long-term incentive plans, but that's still a minority practice and I think a little bit trickier to manage. Um, and I think the most important thing for compensation committees in this area will be to come up with something that can be easily explained and understood by lots of different stakeholders, as we seem to keep emphasizing during this conversation. So remember that at the same time, there's a push to add these metrics. Some investors are also urging companies to reduce the complexity of their plans and to do a better job of communicating the alignment between pay and achievement of the company's strategic goals. And so, you know, those are important things to keep in mind as, as, committees are exploring how to add these new metrics. So Liz, um, has have, has either um, uh, compensationstandards.com or CCR Corp uh, published um, anything on this topic that you can refer folks to? Because as uh, Melody mentioned, people uh, tend to not want to be leaders in this area. They want to 
get some comfort about what others have done. Have you uh, published on this area yet? Yeah, we have a lot of resources on this area, actually. On our compensationstandards.com website, we have an entire portal dedicated to sustainability metrics and compensation plans. And so there are a lot of good resources there from compensation consultants and law firms and others um, as far as how to go about doing that, what the trends are, uh, what the pitfalls might be. And so that's certainly a good place to visit for information. Well, great. Um, I'm going to end it there with one final comment, which is, um, to me, the great challenge in this issue of uh, stakeholder governance and corporate purpose and having management manage in that direction is the difficulty of serving multiple masters. Uh, shareholder primacy at least did have the benefit of focusing the mind. And one wonders whether um, this trend of, of having a management now trying to serve multiple goals, multiple stakeholder groups, uh, is, the benef- is the sort of residual of a strong economy and whether that um, trend will give way in the face of an um, environment in which profits may be harder to come by and institutional investors increasingly chase yield. Um, I, I teach a course on uh, governance <clears throat> at the Ohio State University, and, and one of the focuses of my class this last time uh, was to show people uh, the change in emphasis in the business roundtable pronouncements in this area over decades. And you can clearly see the impact of societal attitudes on on this issue. And one wonders whether the current focus will be influenced by changing economic trends. With that, I think we're going to have to wrap up. I want to thank Liz Dunchy and Melody Rose for uh, not only their contributions to the director's handbook, but for their willing and very able participation in this podcast today. I want to thank all of you for listening and again to invite you uh, to look forward to further editions of this podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.